Hi, I'm Adam Sanford. I'm an academic life coach and professor in Los Angeles. And I'm Dinur Bloom. I'm a college professor in Los Angeles. And this is Learning Made Easier, a podcast where we discuss how we learn and how we teach and how they overlap. Welcome back to Learning Made Easier. This is episode 119, being twice exceptional. Twice exceptional in a broad sense means a student who is both gifted and disabled at the same time. As Charlie, the main character of Daniel Key's brilliant novel Flowers for Algernon Riley notes, exceptional refers to both ends of the spectrum, so all my life I've been exceptional. In this novel, which is a science fiction story, Charlie is a mentally retarded man who has an IQ of about one, about 60, and he is offered the opportunity to be part of a research project to see if they can increase his intelligence, and they do, massively. He becomes a super genius. But he notes that in the interest of not calling people things like retarded, we started using the term exceptional. And if you're not in the middle of the bell curve, you're exceptional, whether you're at the bottom end or the top. The students who are twice exceptional today are the ones who are both what we used to call gifted and challenged. The shortened term for this situation is 2E, the number 2 and the small letter E, and we will be referring to it interchangeably as 2E or twice exceptional as we go through this episode. Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman, who is himself twice exceptional, recently published a book on the topic of twice exceptional students. His definition of the term is detailed and really important, so we're going to share it with you here. According to Dr. Kaufman, twice exceptional individuals demonstrate exceptional levels of capacity, competence, commitment, or creativity in one or more domains, coupled with one or more learning difficulties. This combination of exceptionalities results in a unique set of circumstances. Their exceptional potentialities may dominate, hiding their disability. Their disability may dominate, hiding their exceptional potentialities. Each may mask the other so that neither is recognized or addressed. The concept of twice exceptional began to show up in education in the late 1990s. We had seen children with disabilities like dyslexia, ADHD, and autism in special education for decades at that point. But we had also seen gifted children showing up in programs like MGM and GATE and other programs aimed at the gifted and talented for about as long. The problem was these two sets of specialists were siloed from each other. They weren't interacting. And so nobody realized that a child who was brilliant at mathematics could also be dealing with a severe learning disability at the same time. More recently, there's been greater awareness of twice exceptional children in the K through 12 grades, but in college, many are still invisible to administrators and professors. The estimated number of kids who are two E's is about 300,000, but Coffin feels that is a huge underestimate of the reality. Now, in order to help two E students, we first need to recognize what they need. So here's a short list, and again, this is from Kaufman. Two E students who may perform below, at, or above grade level, so in college it would be they're living up to their potential or they're not, require the following. Specialized methods of identification that consider the possible interaction of the exceptionalities. Enriched and advanced educational opportunities that focus on developing the child's interests and highest strengths 
while also meeting the child's learning needs. And finally, simultaneous supports that ensure the child's academic success and social emotional well-being, such as accommodations, therapeutic interventions, and specialized instruction. Kaufman also says, working successfully with this unique population requires specialized academic training and ongoing professional development. Critically, these behaviors occur in certain people at certain times and under certain circumstances, especially when the environment is supportive, such as having high expectations, and in environments that challenge them appropriately in the areas of their highest potentiality. Kaufman also discusses the four Cs, capacity, competence, commitment, and creativity. Capacity is what we used to call potential. It means what a person could do given their starting setup. Competence, on the other hand, means what a person actually does. It's how much ability a person has to do the things they're trying to do. Now, when capacity exceeds competence, we call it not living up to your potential. And lots of 2E students have seen that written on report cards and teachers' letters to home and all kinds of, they've heard it over and over again. But when competence meets or exceeds capacity, we call it gifted and talented. Now, here's the fun part. When capacity exceeds competence, we say, why aren't you trying hard enough? You're gifted and talented. But when competence meets or exceeds capacity, we just say, hey, it's so great that you're gifted and talented. And we don't recognize that there are some areas of a gifted and talented person's life that maybe I'm not only not gifted and talented, but I really suck at this. And we just get mad at them for not being gifted and talented in all areas. Now, the other two C's, commitment means, in a nutshell, how committed a student is to do what they're doing. How interested are they? How persistent are they? And finally, creativity is important, so we know basically what grabs a kid's attention, so we can let them work in that area or those areas as much as possible, so they can enjoy learning as well as participating in it. And Kaufman asks us to use these four domains to look at a 2E student and see where their strengths and weaknesses are, and then help them play to their strengths. All right, all of this sounds like a great idea for K-12, but where is the college student in this? Let's take each of the points that Kaufman made and apply them to college students. Specialized methods of identification that consider the possible interaction of the exceptionalities basically means, let's make sure we look for both the gifted exceptions and the disabled exceptions, which might mask each other. As an example, a person who's verbal may do a very good job of hiding their difficulties with writing by talking a good line. Or a person who is dyspraxic might have developed a class clown persona to make up for, for their difficulty with balance and motor skills. Enriched or advanced educational opportunities that focus on developing the child's interests and highest strengths while also meeting the child's learning needs. This means finding areas where the student's strengths and interests help them get past the challenges they're facing. A student struggling with math but gifted in music could benefit from understanding the mathematical basis of how musical rhythm works, for example. And finally, simultaneous supports that ensure the child's academic success and social-emotional well-being, such as accommodations, therapeutic interventions, and specialized instructions, that could include coaching, tutoring, counseling, and extensions on work. This is essentially the basis of disability accommodation. And folks, when you have a student who's disabled, it doesn't matter how brilliant they are in other areas, they need the accommodations. So make sure they have them. So teaching and working with 2E students, not to mention being a 2E student, that means finding the student's strengths and playing to those strengths 
as much as possible. You got to find ways to let these two students shine in the areas where they're already good at what they do. Now, our experiences with it, I deal with ADHD and dyspraxia, and I did not realize this until after I had graduated with the PhD. So you all can imagine how fun that made school for me. And when I was young, I was labeled gifted. So I was in the GATE program. Uh, that meant that I started junior high a year earlier than some of my classmates. Some were with me in the same program, but starting junior high a year early when you're all going through puberty, not the easiest thing to do. And one of the things that really jumped out at me in both junior high and high school was I was really, really, really good at things like English, and I was pretty good at social studies. So the classes that involved reading and writing a lot and talking, I was pretty good at those. I was absolutely trash at STEM classes. So math classes, especially once geometry came into play, out the window. Art classes, chemistry, sorry, dad, physics, biology, None of those clicked for whatever reason. And they still honestly don't. There's a reason I'm a sociologist and a criminologist, not an architect or an artist. It's frustrating when you're a teenager and you're trying to figure out, hey, why am I so comfortable in some classes, but I am just terrible. Like I am so far behind my friends. And it wasn't like my friends were trying to make me feel bad. They, it was just material that clicked for them that made absolutely zero sense to me. And one of the things that helped me was when we started college, one of my first classes was an intro to poli-sci lecture with about 400 or 500 students. On the one hand, it's pretty overwhelming. It's why I tried to sit towards the front so I wouldn't get overwhelmed by seeing so many people. But it also, it helped me realize it didn't matter where each of us were in high school, what each of us struggled with or was great with, we were all in the same class. We were all college students doing the college thing. And that acted kind of as a leveler or an equalizer for me. Now, two of the ways my ADHD presents itself is, one, I will start making a lot of really seemingly random connections across unrelated topics. But if I find connections that work, I will hyper-focus on them like crazy. I'm not kidding when I tell all of you listeners that there are times it was a lot easier for me to write chapters for books or for my dissertation than it was to do things like hanging up or fold my laundry. And you might go, what the hell? Like, it's easy to fold laundry, right? You just take the shirts, you put them on the hanger. But for me, a chapter meant I had an idea or a line of thought that I really wanted to see how far I could go down. But putting clothes up, again, when they're just going to be worn they're going to get dirty again, and I'm going to put them in the laundry again. What the hell is time for that? I mentioned being dyspraxic. And dyspraxia means my brain can understand that it needs to do certain things, and it will not make my body do them. And this includes things like things, I don't know, tying a tie, using chopsticks, throwing the baseball accurately. So my dreams of being a major league pitcher probably aren't going to happen hitting a baseball at, uh, well, my major league hopes are ruined, but my dreams of being a credentialed sports photographer, still very much alive. And one thing I'll tell all of you is I don't view these conditions as, you know, sources of pity or nor do I want them to be inspiration porn. They're hidden difficulties. They're hidden challenges 
that I've been somewhat aware of. I've been aware that there are difficulties, especially with my motor skills. I didn't know there was a name connecting everything together. But I've also learned that it's possible to take something that's seen as a weakness, like ADHD, and use aspects of it to your advantage. So when I'm able to hyper-focus on things like writing good lectures, on writing a syllabus, on writing chapters, I can be in flow for a few hours straight and it feels like 15 minutes. So just because you hear about being on the low end or being twice exceptional doesn't mean that it ruins a life. It means there are gonna be challenges that are gonna be invisible to other people. I'm sure to plenty of people, I just look like a klutz because I'm so uncoordinated, but it doesn't mean that you can't do stuff that you love. Uh, one of the things that I'm really glad for is I've been able to take things I really love. Uh, I mentioned my sports photography on here. I've taken my general approach to life and that's trying to help people and bring the best out in them. And I've even been able to use my research all in order to help with a charity. I'm doing sports photography for a charity down in Lake Elsinore. One of the programs helps children of military families because the person running the charity himself was in the military and he knows those hidden difficulties really well. The other program that we're doing is trying to teach kids in K through 12 grades to do community service, to help out each other in school. And for every number of things done or every number of hours done, they get treats from the team. They maybe get to go on the field. They get tickets to games. They get signed gear by players. And part of my photos are being turned into cards. And it's really gratifying to be able to take something that I love doing in my sports photography and take my love for sports, being able to use it to help people and make other people happy. And that's something that I'm doing while being twice exceptional. I'm also twice exceptional. So I've talked about this before. I was labeled gifted in the early 1970s. And that's when the school program was called MGM or mentally gifted minds. But I was also an undiagnosed autistic. Being autistic made me intensely interested in reading, writing and talking. Notice these are all word based things. But when it came to math, I struggled. When it came to social interaction, I really struggled. And I was promoted from second to third grade at the middle of the year, even though I was already reading at probably an eighth grade level at that point. And that completely wrecked any ability to stay current in math in which I was already struggling. And nobody could figure out why I wasn't living up to my potential in math and in the hard sciences because I was gifted, right? So I must have been lazy or not trying. And please see our recent episode 117 for more on the whole lazy issue. I wasn't actually officially diagnosed with autism, like Denor wasn't diagnosed with his problems, until after I graduated from graduate school, although my undergrad and grad institution did recognize that I had various learning disabilities and they mostly accommodated them, but it was still really tough. And one of the hardest things for me was accepting that there were things I could not do. Because being raised with the label of gifted meant I had this unreasonable assumption, remember that fixed mindset thing, here it is again, that my potential dictated my life, that if I was smart, then I should be able to do anything I put my mind to. And I found out and rapidly that my variety of smart does not map to math. Math is difficult for me, it probably always will be. And it took a long, long time for me to accept that being smart does not mean I'm good at everything that there are areas where my disabilities will always make things more difficult or more confusing. So I can either fight that and completely wear myself out or I can accept it and find workarounds. 
Nowadays, I look at being autistic as a set of strengths and challenges. And that thing Denor mentioned about making cross connections between concepts, I do that too. It turns out that as a generalist, it's a huge strength because I can connect all kinds of things and make the picture both more detailed and bigger at the same time. Also, given a situation, a challenge can either be a strength or a strength can become a challenge. That ability to see all those connections, that's fantastic when I'm writing a paper. Not so great when I'm trying to have a casual social conversation with a friend, unless that friend is a fellow academic, but that's a whole other episode. We'll get to that some other time. In any case, it's taken me a while to realize I can play to my strengths, that it's not impossible to get ahead just because, for example, social interaction remains a mystery to me. But I no longer hope that people will pick up on what I'm worried about. I now actively state it. I say, I'm worried about this thing. Should I be? And there are people who say, oh, but that makes you so vulnerable. That opens you to attack. Yeah, but that's better than misreading what they're saying, making the wrong guess, and then ending up with a situation where suddenly I don't have enough income. So the thing about being twice exceptional is you will often get tremendous insight on something. But like Denor, you might not be able to make your body do what you know you want it to do. Your body just says, yeah, what? <laughs> sure, we'll do that once maybe, you know, but it won't be a consistent thing. Or you might not be able to get your brain to express in words what you're seeing in your head. Like if you think in pictures, I know that a lot of twice exceptional kids, they're picture thinkers. And writing is extremely difficult for them because translating what they're seeing in their head into written words or spoken words is tough. It's really, really tough. So here's some ways that students can use what we're talking about here. This has mostly been aimed toward other educators, but students, you need to hear this too. If you're twice exceptional, you probably already know it, even if you hadn't heard the term before this episode. If your performance seems to be hit and miss, you're great at some things and awful at others, it's worth getting tested. Your campus disability center should be able to guide you to some resources that'll help you at least get started on understanding what your challenges are and developing accommodations that can help you get through them. Now, when it comes to how teachers can use what we've been talking about, there are three things. Be aware, be a patient, and be kind. So first, be aware of this problem. 2E students don't magically become regular students just because they arrived at college any more than disabled students suddenly become abled when they walk onto a college campus. The smart student who just can't figure out what you want in your chemistry lab, they're not malingering. They're probably frustrated because they've been told they're smart and now they're up against something that they just can't figure out. If they've been told all their lives that they're smart or gifted, this can be a crushing blow to their self-esteem and self-concept when they run into, once again, something that they can't make work for whatever reason. Be patient. Talk with these students about how they experience your class requirements. What comes up for them? Are they beating themselves up for not doing it right? Are they frustrated by directions they can't make sense of? What's going on that might be indicating a disability or a learning challenge? And finally, be kind. A lot of disabilities are invisible, and some students may not even be aware they have a disability or they're in denial about it. I've got a story here. I had a student who was Asian, I believe, Korean or, or Vietnamese, and there was the whole cultural pressure that, you know, you are supposed to be a good student, right? And it turned out when she came to my office, I was a TA at the time, a teaching assistant, I handed her the exam that she had just failed, and I said, okay, look at question three, what is the right answer? And she just shook her head. She couldn't answer the question. And I said, okay, what about question five? And she shook her head. And I said, okay, give me that. And so I took the test paper back, and I said, question three is... What is the blah, 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 
A this, B that, C this, or D that? And she had the answer before I finished reading the question or before I finished reading the choices. I did it again with question five. She understood it when she could hear it, but trying to read it, she was having extreme difficulty. And I said, Tian, what's going on when you look at the paper? What do you see? And she said, the words won't stop moving. They're dancing. I can't read very well. And I can't tell you that because my parents said I could never tell anybody about this. So she'd been diagnosed with a learning disability in the grades, but none of that was ever communicated to the school. It took six meetings for her to trust me enough that she would allow me to walk with her over to the disability services center and say, hey, you know, um, uh, Marsha, this is this is Tian and she's having a little trouble with reading. Figured maybe she could use your services. I hope you can help her. Within two weeks, they had figured out what the problem was. They had developed an intervention and an accommodation, and suddenly her grades shot through the roof. But if they're in denial, they may be very touchy about it. Okay, If they don't know they have a disability, it may really upset them to learn that they might have one. So walk cautiously, but try to get the student to go and see the disability services office when you see a student struggling like this. And it's better to be kind, because the students will remember if you're not and they won't remember it in a good way. Not to mention, that can get you in a lot of trouble with administration if you don't accommodate disabled students in the ways they need. When I was in graduate school, I had a professor who insisted that I was not allowed to have accommodations on the qualifying exams. And they said, if you're gonna take twice as long, then you have to do twice as much work. So I went to disability services and they apparently landed on him like a ton of bricks. The word lawsuit was used. And suddenly I was allowed the accommodation that I should have had all along. Don't make your students fight for the accommodations, help them find them. You want your students to succeed, don't you? And this, and for the people who say, well, accommodations are just, you know, allowing them to cheat or giving them an unfair advantage. Would you say that to a student who needed to use crutches? How about a student who needed to wear glasses? The accommodations of double time, the accommodations of someone reading them the exam if they have a reading problem, that's no different than glasses. So that's what we have for you in episode 119. If you're finding this podcast helpful, please share it with your friends. We're always hoping to get new subscribers so we can help more people. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Android. We're hosted on Blueberry.com. Also, we'd really appreciate it if you wrote a review of this podcast on Apple Podcasts. And be sure to join us next week for episode 120, when we'll talk about when and why you might want to change majors. You've been listening to Learning Made Easier, a podcast about how we learn, how we teach, and how they overlap. We want to say thank you to all of our supporters on Patreon who make this podcast possible. If you want to support us, please go to www.patreon.com slash learningmadeeasier. We look forward to seeing you next week.